We're going to continue our lesson series through prayers in Scripture. It's a celebration of prayer. And tonight we're going to focus on a prayer that is very well known by Christianity at large. Not so much as celebrated in our circles, amen, because of the fact that uh, it is the prayer of Mary after she learns that she will bear the ch Christ child and the Catholics worship Mary. And so this this prayer called the Magnificat has become a huge centerpiece of that Mary worship. Now, we don't worship Mary, amen? But this is still an important prayer. And so we're going to study it tonight. It is in uh, Luke chapter 1. Well, I'm going to read verse 38, and then I'm going to read verses 46 through 55, and then we'll come back and go through it one verse at a time. Amen. Verse 38 says, And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Skipping down to verse 46, now Mary begins to pray. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Amen. Studies indicate that one in four workers are afraid of their boss. They're afraid of their superior at work. In most cases, that fear has little to do with the superior. It has absolutely makes no difference if the boss has a pleasing or difficult personality or if past encounters with that boss have been dreadful or delightful. Often the, the source of the fear is not the superior or the, or the boss at work. Often it has more to do with the negative life experience of the worker. The worker comes into the situation predisposed to be afraid of the one that has authority over him or her. And it is a major, has a major detrimental impact on bo both the employee and the workplace because fearful employees are less likely to enjoy their job. Fearful employees are less likely to get satisfaction from their job. And the constant anxiety and worry is more likely to cause them to miss work. Amen? But worst of all, fear of displeasing the boss causes many employees to avoid doing outstanding work because they, they limit their creativity. They stick to routine and largely anonymous work so that they won't be noticed. 
because they're afraid if they're noticed, they'll get in trouble for something. Amen? The same can be said of some people in serving God. The same things that make people afraid of their superiors at work can also cause them to fear doing something for God. In, in the parable of the talent, the servant who hid his talent in the ground didn't do so because he didn't have any ability. He didn't do so because he was lazy. He didn't do so out of dishonesty. He did it because he was afraid of his master. He did it because he was afraid that he, whatever he produced wouldn't be good enough and he would get in trouble for it. So the, the principle there is that the master saw in him prospective success. He saw in him the potential for success. The master saw something in the servant that he said, you know what? I can trust him with my talent and he will multiply it. But the servant only saw in himself potential failure. The servant only saw in himself the obstacles that were there. The servant only saw through the eyes of his fear. It's one thing to be humble and submitted, but it's another thing entirely to allow the impossibility of a situation to overshadow the possibilities that God has placed within you. Amen. When that angel stands before Mary and tells her the Christ child is going to be conceived within her, you must expect that she would have been afraid. You must expect that, that she would be humbled. You must expect that she would find herself in a place where she wasn't sure what the next step should be. But we learn from Mary not to let your fear hinder you from obeying God. Amen? Instead, she humbles herself. Instead, she submits herself. And by so doing, she makes herself usable to God. So in Mary's prayer, we catch a glimpse of why God chose to use her. Mary's hymn of praise re recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. As I said a moment ago, is one of the best known prayers in all of Christianity mainly due to the Catholic Church's worship of Mary. They call the phrase, or the, the passage, the Magnificat, that comes from the Latin translation of the first word in the phrase, or in the, in the hymn, or the, the passage of praise. Now, we don't hold Mary in that high esteem like the Catholic Church does, but we will look at her prayer because her words provide us a great model for a prayer of praise coming from the heart of humility and submission to God. Mary's prayer, one theologian said, represents the highest form of prayer because it asks for nothing. Instead, it expresses adoration and thankfulness. One might ask, what did God do to deserve such high praise from a young Jewish teenager? What did God do to provoke this, these words of praise, this high form of prayer? It's the answer to that question that presents us with the true conundrum behind her prayer. God gave Mary the most paradoxically cursed blessing that was ever bestowed upon a young lady. Because of God's favor, she gets to be an unwed mother at a time when such things 
frequently resulted in death by stoning or a lifetime of prostitution. Because of God's favor, she gets to have her virtue and her purity questioned by everyone. Because of God's favor, she gets to see the look of disbelief in the eyes of anyone that she tries to share the truth with. When she says it's God's son, she can see the disbelief. Because of God's favor, she gets to realize that even if her fiancé saves her from the charge of adultery, they will always be the object of knowing glances filled with scorn. Everybody is going to feel like they know the truth. Because of God's favor, she'll get to go on the run from a government that wants to kill her child. Because of God's favor, she'll learn that she can never fully claim him, never fully guide him, or never fully comprehend him. Because of God's favor, she would witness his rejection, she would see his arrest, and she would be there when he was crucified. And she knows through it all that she has been chosen by God and entrusted with his favor to endure these things. And with that in mind, Mary says, He that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Think about it for a minute. You're pregnant. You're not married. All of the guilt, all the shame, all the things that are going to come along with it, all of the misunderstanding. And Mary has the, the fortitude, the spiritual fortitude within her to rise up and say, He that is mighty has done a great thing to me. At the same time that God has highly favored her, the very source of her blessing will become a sword that pierces her heart. William Barclay said it well when referencing Mary's dilemma. He said to be chosen by God so often means at one and the same time to receive a crown of joy and a cross of sorrow. But Mary answers all of that with a prayer of praise. That's why this prayer is so significant. Verse 46 says, I'm going to read 46 and 47 together. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. When Mary says, my soul and my spirit, she's saying that from her innermost being, with all that she has and all that she is, she magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God, her Savior. That verb uh, translated as magnify signifies to celebrate with words or to extol with praises that's the only way in which god can be magnified you can't make him greater he is as as big and as great as he's ever going to be amen there's none like him he fills the universe amen god's not going to get any bigger amen but whenever we begin to magnify him it's not that we add something to god he's infinite and eternal it's that we begin to magnify our view of him amen telescope doesn't make the moon any bigger but it sure makes your perspective of the moon change. Amen. When you look at the moon with your eyes, you, 
you just see kind of this this glowing sphere in the sky. But when you get the telescope out and you look at the moon, you see all the details of craters. And on an especially clear night when the moon is especially close to the earth, you can see tremendous detail in that moon through that telescope. It's not that the moon is any closer. It's not that the moon is any bigger. It's not that the moon is there's somehow transformed from the time you looked at it with your eyes to the time you looked at it through the telescope. But it's that the, that magnitude magnification makes it bigger in your perspective. Amen. That's what Mary's saying. Her, I, I'm going to magnify the Lord. I'm going to praise him. Uh, everything that's within me praises him. Uh, having received this news that some of us would have translated as bad news. Amen. Mary said, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to magnify his name. And her praise embodies an humble spirit. God owes her nothing. But she owes God everything. And her heart cries out, I praise the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord for he is my Savior. So what has God done to deserve this praise? Verse 48 says, For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. That word regarded means to look favorably upon. Mary said, I was of low estate. This means that she came from humble roots. To underscore that, she called herself the handmaiden of the Lord. That word handmaid sounds almost respectful and complimentary to the modern ear. Amen. We look at that and we think, well, that's, that's probably a compliment. But it's not. It's translated from the Greek word for a female slave. And in a society that was dominated by classes, a female slave was the lowest class in society, even lower than male slaves. That's Mary's position. That's how Mary presents herself. She's of a low estate. The Greek adjective used for that low is a word that is translated elsewhere in the book of Philippians as vile. That's the way Mary presents herself. That's how low she says that she is. And one might object and say, well, wait a minute. Isn't Mary from the lineage of King David? And one would have to answer and say, yes, she is. Matter of fact, both Mary and Joseph are from the lineage of David. But there's a difference. Joseph is a descendant of the royal line of Solomon. But Mary is a descendant of Solomon's youngest brother, Nathan. And what that means is that 1,000 years removed from Solomon, Mary's lineage doesn't matter all that much. Amen. She is not regarded as being all that special. Uh, she's not from the kingly line. She's not from the line of Solomon. She doesn't have the pride and prestige that Joseph has. In the daily circumstances of her life, being related to David really doesn't mean all that much to her or to the people around around her. She doesn't come from a prominent family. She doesn't come from a family that has political or social power or ambitions. She's just a lowly handmaiden, which is why God chose her. Yet the Lord looked favorably upon her. That's why she praises him, not because of who she was, 
but because of what he has done. Not because of any good that was in her, but because of the goodness that he has shown to her. And when Mary says that future generations will call her blessed, she isn't seeking accolades or the worship that will later come to her through the Catholic Church. That's not her goal. What she's saying is that for all generations, people will remember that a lowly handmaid can be mightily blessed of God. It's almost as if she's saying, if this can happen to me, it can happen to you. Amen. If it doesn't matter my background, if it doesn't matter where I come from, if it doesn't matter my station in life, then yours doesn't matter either. For generations, they will look back and they'll call me blessed uh, because in me there's hope. Uh, amen. There's hope that I too can be blessed. Uh, that I too can step up. Uh, that God can use me if he can use Mary. Verse 49 says, For he that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy is his name. So she sees herself as insignificant. But that doesn't matter. The mighty one is at work in her life. He has done great things in her life. But God is, is not to be thought of just in terms of power. She says also, he's holy. Amen. Holy is his name. That, that word name, that the indication of name in the Old Testament had a fuller meaning then than it did with us now. It, it meant the whole person. What she was saying is not simply that God's name is a holy name. What she's saying is that God is a holy God. Amen. His, his mighty, he's the mighty one. He's the powerful one. He's a righteous one, and he is the holy one. He's apart from us. He's altogether different. Amen. Verse 50, she says, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Not only is God mighty and holy, he's also merciful. In every generation, his mercy is certain to fall on those who are fearful or respectful of him. Once again, Mary looks to the future. Once again, she's saying, if God has been so merciful to me, then he'll be merciful to you as well. Amen. He'll show his mercy to them that fear him from generation to generation. His mercy isn't something that's just limited to Mary. His mercy isn't something that just happened then. Uh, amen. But it's something that extends uh, from generation to generation. And Mary fully expects that others who come after her will see God do mighty things on their behalf and be blessed by his unchanging mercy just like she is. Verse 51, she says, He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. This verse marks a transition. Up, into this point, up to this point, Mary's been talking in the first person singular. It's been about me. Now she talks in the third person plural. Her focus is no longer on what God has done for her. It's now on what God has done for his people, for those who fear God. 
he has showed his strength with his arm. The figure of God's arm is commonly used in the Old Testament to express that God's power and his strength uh, and his ability. And it's used here to describe how God shows his strength to those who fear him. Amen. One way that God shows his strength is to raise his arm against the proud. The idea of God dispersing or scattering the proud is is another theme that reverberates throughout the Old Testament. It's it's a popular theme in Scripture. The proud are described as being proud in the imagination of their hearts. In other words, they're not just simply arrogant in their actions. They're arrogant in their imaginations. They think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And he confounds them. He scatters them. Amen. He shows himself. So Mary can take consolation in the fact that the mighty one that's doing this great deed in her life. Amen. He takes those arrogant ones that look down on her and he will scatter them. Verse 52 says, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. So even as God lifts up the humble like Mary, he brings the mighty down from their thrones of power. What Mary is celebrating is a complete reversal of roles. We started with Mary the handmaiden, Mary the lowly one, Mary as low as she can get, uh, the lowest of the low. But now God has exalted her. Amen. She who was nothing has been blessed. uh, And they who thought they were everything, had been brought low. Mary's also looking to the future. She's looking to the Christ child in her womb who will bring the kingdoms of this world to their knees as he lifts up the humble and blesses those who fear him. Verse 53 says, He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. Once again, this is another theme of the Old Testament. God will fill the hungry, but he'll send the rich away empty. Jesus Christ would embody these words. He'll feed the hungry when they come to him out of the abundance of their need. But he'll turn away the rich when they come to him out of the abundance of their arrogance. He'll feed the hungry with good things, but he'll turn away the rich. Verse 54 and 5 says, He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. That word translated hoping. I know you want to help it out and say helping or something else. It's one of those old English words that finds its way into the King James Version of the Bible. But it's translated from a Greek word that has to do with propping something up. Israel has fallen, and the Lord has stepped in to prop him up or support him. Jerusalem is under the thumb of Rome. The house of David is about to fall and never rise again. But Jesus takes a young lady from the very last branch of David's 
royal line, one that has no claim to kingly authority, and he's going to use her to forever establish the throne of David. That's how he props up Israel. Amen. He comes from the most unlikely of places, the most unlikely of candidates, she who is from the lowest of David's line, and he exalts her, and from her he brings forth the Savior. Why does he do that? I love this. In remembrance of his mercy. Can I tell you that God's mercy has memory? He remembers the covenant promise that he made with Abraham. And even though Israel has fallen far, and even though Israel has messed up, and even though Israel has wandered away, God has not forgotten his promises. Uh, and he'll do this thing. Uh, he will hope in them, or he will support them, or he'll prop them up. Uh, he'll bring forth a Savior from the lineage of David because his mercy remembers the promise uh, that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. I want to tell you something this evening. I'm glad that God's judgment is forgetful and that his mercy has a memory. I'm glad that he remembers every promise he ever made. I'm glad that whenever I come to him at an altar of repentance that he quickly forgets uh, the wrong that I've committed and remembers the mercy that he's outstretched to me, remembers the promises that he's made. Where would you be if it wasn't for mercy's memory? Amen. I know I've not been lengthy, but I, I'm going to close with this. It's, it's a, not a complex passage of Scripture. It is a very praise-oriented prayer. But scholars have often noted that this prayer of praise that Mary prays here closely resembles Hannah's song that she sings in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But they've also noticed that it contains references to no less than 12 other Old Testament passages. So in those 10 verses, which are a prayer of praise and thanksgiving that flows from the heart of Mary, she manages to allude to or quote or reference at least 13 different passages of Scripture. What's that tell you about Mary? That tells me that Mary's heart was full of the Word of God. She obviously had a deep-seated love for God's Word, and she obviously had committed much of it to memory so that once she begins to praise Him, once she begins to magnify Him, she easily begins to pray with Scripture. In that day and age, Education in Scripture was a requirement for every child, even the young ladies. And it's clear that Mary has been systematically exposed to the Word of God. She's heard it. She's been taught it. It's been pronounced over her. She's, she's spent time in that Word. But it's also clear that she's found a love from the word, for the Word that has driven her to make it a part of her very being, to make it a part of her very heart, so that when her soul cries out, 
it cries out in the language of Scripture. The words of praise that flow from her heart are the words of the Old Testament prophets. The words of praise that come from her heart are the words of the Word of God that is buried deep within her and drawing from the abundance of the Word that she's placed in her heart. Her praise declares God's mighty power, His distinctive holiness, and His everlasting mercy. Amen. She can look at this thing that has been done to her and she can see it through eyes of praise because she knows the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Because she's familiar with the story of how God parted the Red Sea and how He brought the children of Israel into the promised land and how he destroyed the city of Jericho. She's familiar with the story. She knows the word of God. She remembers how Hannah was blessed. There's something to be said for praying with the word. But there's also something to be said for hiding the word in your heart to the extent that when you begin to pray, the word flows out of you. If we learn nothing else from Mary's prayer, we ought to learn that it's an important thing to hide the word of God in my heart to such an extent that when I begin to pray, the words that come into my mind, the language of my soul becomes the language of scripture as I begin to speak his word in prayer. Amen. The word, David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Would you stand with me? On a Wednesday night, I want to challenge you in a couple areas. First of all, I want to challenge you to find a reason to praise Him, even in your hard circumstances. I mean, we, we talked about the downside of Mary's blessing, but Mary didn't talk about it. We went through the details of everything that she got to do because of God's favor, but you don't find anywhere that Mary spells all that out. Mary just says, I'm going to praise him. My soul cries out. My spirit cries out. The mighty one has done a good work in my life. He is my Savior, and I will bless his name. Find a reason to praise him. Amen. And secondly, I want to challenge you to put his word in your heart. Until it becomes the very language of your soul. I, it is absolutely phenomenal. It is absolutely incredible. That out of the heart of that young girl. 15, 16 years old. That when she begins to pray a prayer of praise. And woven through that prayer. Just 10 verses. Or over 13 passages. Of Old Testament scripture. That doesn't happen by chance, and it doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you love the Word, and because you put it in your heart. It and if you do that, David said, if you put it in your heart, it'll keep you from sin. It'll keep you in a dark and cruel world. I, I, I need to close, but I remember the story of American soldiers as they were liberating one of the concentration camps. And there they found a cell where obviously a man had been kept for many, many, many days, an isolation cell, what do you call it, solitary confinement. 
And on the walls of that cell, there were scrawled many, many passages of Old Testament scripture, the Torah. He was a Jew. But the word, because in that darkest hour, only thing he had was what he put in his heart. He didn't have a Bible to write from. He didn't have a Bible to read from. But what was in his heart was translated to the walls of that cell. And later on, after he's dead and gone, others would come and marvel at how well-versed he was in the Word of God. I don't know about you, but I want to leave that kind of testimony. Amen? Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? I love you. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy.